Today's show is also brought to you by City Running Tours. Like Frank Sinatra says, if you can run here, you can run anywhere. Okay, maybe he didn't say that, but if you really want to experience the streets of New York City, there's no better way than to sweat and sightsee on a guided running tour with City Running Tours. These active tours satisfy the runner and tourist in all of us. You can choose a personalized tour and customize your own running experience. Join a group tour to see a specific neighborhood or organize your next corporate or social walk or run event. They've got tours that run through the Bronx, Riverside Park, the High Line, Alphabet City, Dumbo. No distance is too far, pace too slow, or time is too early. Use the coupon code BOWERYBOYS, that's one word, BOWERYBOYS, to receive 10% off your next tour. Visit cityrunningtours.com slash New York City to book your tour today. Episode 270 of the Bowery Boys, a history of Riverside Park. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. First of all, we'd like to thank everyone who came out to our New York Historical Society event last week, uh, the Bowery Boys Magical Mystery Hour. It was uh, magical. <laughs> we even had some magic tricks, and they all went off without a hitch, I'd say. Well, they so. did on stage, right. <laughs> yes. You'll remember that during rehearsal, I had a magic <laughs> trick injury. The first yes, of my yes, life. Yes. So thank you for coming out to that. But we have another event that we'd like to share with you now. That's right. We are doing the first ever Bowery Boys Halloween show live on stage at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater on, get this, Halloween night, <laughs> 2018. There's two shows, 7 o'clock and 9.30. Tickets are going fast, but mm -hmm. there are still some good seats. So we encourage you to visit the website of Joe's Pub and book your tickets today. That's right. You can find those tickets at publictheater.org. Now, turning to today's show, we're going to be taking a very long walk in the park. Uh, the 323-acre Riverside Park, which stretches up Manhattan's Upper West Side. People can sometimes forget the importance of Riverside Park because it is, you know, it's over on the far west side. Mm -hmm. and But this area has been a major project for some of the city's greatest civic planners, from Frederick Law Olmsted and Andrew Green to Robert Moses, and even a certain real estate developer who's leading our country right now. So as you see, the park's history is multi-layered, mm -hmm. and much like the park itself, uh, because the construction of the park has spanned many different eras. And meanwhile, the park itself has many different levels, from high points way up on Riverside Drive all the way down to the banks of the Hudson River. But for more than a century, Riverside has been this leafy escape. It's, it's paths lined with monuments to many of the world's greatest thinkers and heroes, along with some extraordinary shade trees. This is a park that is chock full of secrets and a history that goes all the way back to the 18th century. And I want to do something a little differently. I'm inspired by our Halloween ghost story announcement. Okay. So I'm going to put on my storytelling voice uh -oh. now. For there is actually a Gothic legend associated with the area in which we are about to speak. And it's so different from the rest of the story and takes place many decades before the start of our story that it needs to be told in a slightly different way. 
The story that I'm about to tell is about a little boy named St. Clair Pollock. The setting is the 1790s. If you were to head to the area of today's 124th Street and Riverside Drive, almost exactly on the spot of where Grant's tomb is, you would find a hill and a solitary mansion high on a bluff overlooking the Hudson River, a mansion named Monta Alta, owned by an Irish linen merchant named George Pollock. On November 11, 1792, Pollock and his wife were blessed with the birth of a child, a boy they named St. Clair, who was then baptized at Trinity Church. He was a bright and friendly child, much beloved by those who cared for him. He would grow up here on these bluffs far away from the city of New York, which was confined to the southern portion of Manhattan. One tragic day, on July 15, 1797, the poor child died in a terrible accident. As later reported in the New York Tribune, quote, Little St. Clair in satin breeches, silk hose, and starched ruffles took the air on the banks of the Hudson. One morning, evading the vigilance of his nurse, the boy ventured too near the edge of the cliff, fell over, and died. The grief-stricken father had his child buried here on the grounds of his mansion. St. Clair's final resting place was here under a marble stone topped with a marble urn. In 1799, the Pollocks sold the house to a prominent resident named Julian Verplank, sold all the land but the little plot that contained the grave of their son. Unable to keep this tiny plot maintained from afar, Pollock eventually deeded the grave to the owner of Monte Alta, Verplank's widow Cornelia, quote, on the condition that she and her heirs should preserve the grave in perpetuity. And so it was that the grave of this amiable child, St. Clair Pollock, would remain on the hill for decades, a witness to all the changes that would arrive to this formerly secluded area on the Manhattan side of the Hudson River. Wow, what a dramatic and sad story. And a story that's going to come back into our tale at the end of our show, but in a very beautiful, touching way. But that story took place, you said, around today's 124th Street and Riverside, which, of course, hadn't even been laid out. It, was, it happened before the commissioner's plan. So that takes us to the subject of today's show, Riverside Park, which obviously wasn't there at the time. Today's Riverside Park is very unusual, even for a New York City park. It is essentially a four-mile strip along the west side of Manhattan, west of the neighborhood of the Upper West Side, Harlem, and Washington Heights. There's actually another section called Riverside South, which we will speak about. But for most of the show, the park that we will be discussing begins at 72nd Street. It is bordered on the east by Riverside Drive, which is also part of our tale here, mm -hmm. bordered on the west, of course, by the Hudson River. And then that old section of Riverside Park ends north of 128th, 129th Street. But then there is a thin strip that continues north and then expands again into another section of the park until 158th Street. 
But Parkland, of course, continues even north of that. I mean, we yeah. hit the George Washington Bridge and beyond that up in the cloisters. Uh, so there's Greenway really now today in 2018 that goes the entire mm-hmm. length of the island of Manhattan. And what's all the more amazing about all of this beautiful area of, of the city is that th- throughout the entire length, you have the Henry Hudson Parkway, this vehicular road that weaves itself above below and around the park. Suffice it to say, it's not always called the Henry Hudson Parkway. South of 72nd Street, you might know it as the West Side Highway. At some points, Riverside Drive is about 70 feet above the Hudson River. In other places, it's about 150 feet. Mm-hmm. So there's really a difference in levels and altitude to this park. <laughs> I mean, it's truly unique for a park, I think, for any city. It also gives us an idea of the original terrain of Manhattan Mm -hmm. Island because many, you know, the the parts of Riverside Drive reflect the original topography of the city, of the island. And so it's not surprising that in the early days, as I inferred in our prelude in the the 18th and early 19th century, this rugged terrain was lined with mansions. Of course, you know, people who had money building houses here to enjoy these commanding views of the Hudson. Many of these houses, you know, dating even as far back as Dutch ownership. It must have been quite beautiful. I know. Well, sadly, it was not beautiful for that much longer because the needs of New York took precedence. As we mentioned in our Tribeca show, the west side of New York City down on the south part of the island became the destination for great outdoor markets with farmers bringing meat and produce to sell. In 1846, this, the purposes of this market, gave rise to the Hudson River Railroad, which ran along the western length of the island. And that railroad was notable in being the first time that New York City was connected by rail with the rest mm-hmm. of the United States. It I mean, was a big yeah, deal. It was a very big deal. But for the west side here, for the upper west side, lowercase, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it kind of stunted development for, for anything else in this area other than industrial or railroad use. So that train line opens in 1846 along the the banks of the Hudson. But by that time, the commissioner's plan of 1811 obviously was in effect and streets Mm -hmm. had been plotted out up here, but not built yet. Right. I mean, the they were planned, mm-hmm. of course, because it was an orderly grid. It was Stakes supposed in the to, ground. Yes. But uh, no one really got around to, to building them. There, were, there was not a lot of interest in development. So this area doesn't necessarily lend itself to becoming transformed into a park no. uh, in the 1840s. But, you know, 10, 15 years later, there'd be a park well underway, a major central park <laughs> yes. underway, not very far east of here. Yeah, the, thanks to Central Park, New York went from really not caring about parks in a major way to loving parks as a means of moving people, you know, out of congested areas of the city. All this was thanks to Andrew Haswell Green, who was the president of the Central Parks Commission. As I recently discussed um, with Fran Ledden, the author of the Broadway book, uh, A History of New York in 13 Miles, he, he was talking about how the Upper West Side was slower to develop in general. It developed after the Upper East Side and, of course, Midtown. Um, and that was partially due to transportation, mm-hmm. you know, and it was really um, seen as far out of the way. It was hard to access these streets way up here over by the river. 
So to lure people to this area, you didn't need just one park. You needed two. (laughs) New York also had a unique opportunity here to actually develop waterfront for recreational use, which had not been done in lower Manhattan. It hadn't even been in vogue until this period. No, of course. So the state passed a plan in 1866 to build a carriage path on the far west of this upper Manhattan area. The park that would accompany the carriage path, would develop down on a slope, down to a promontory to the very edge of where the railroad is, okay? So it was like a strip between the railroad and the carriage path. Eventually, that carriage path would be developed in the 1870s and called Riverside Avenue. But when was the when was the park developed? Well, it took a few years to acquire all that land, as you can imagine. There weren't a lot of landowners, but it did take a while to buy it all. But by 1873, they had most of the property, and most importantly, they had the architect to work on it. Who else but Frederick Law Olmsted? Of course, the architect of Central Park, uh, Prospect Park, many other parks, uh, along with his partner in parking, Calvert Fox. Although, at first, in, on this project, Frederick Law Olmsted, would, it would be a solo act. Oh. <laughs> Although Vox would come in later to work on landscaping here at Riverside Park. I want to read from the landmark designation report about what Olmsted's unique idea was, because it's really the, the heart of what makes Riverside so unique. Quote, Olmsted's idea was simple and elegant. He combined the land that was purchased for the avenue and with that purchased for the park. He considered the existing grades and contours, the existing plantings and views, and designed a winding drive that would be comfortable for horses and pleasure driving, provide shaded walks for pedestrians, and yet would give easy access to real estate bordering it on the east. If one thinks of the Olmstedian concept of parks joined together by ribbons of green or parkways, then Riverside Park and Drive is a hybrid, a parkway which winds through and along the edge of a park. That is so interesting that he's working with the topography that's Mm -hmm. there. It's the opposite of what he did in Central Park, where they bulldozed everything and then they tried to recreate these bluffs. He was working with the bluffs. (laughs) They wiped it all clean in Central Park, but here he worked with what the land gave him. I would also point out that one thing that they don't mention that was part of his plan was any kind of recreational space for children. (laughs) No. It was all about like being able to go out for a carriage ride or a stroll. Just keep that in mind. Sure. (laughs) There were no swing sets. Mm -mm. Now, Riverside Avenue was done by 1880, and it was the high line of its day, attracting horse-drawn carriages, strollers who were taking in the views. And there weren't a lot of trees, keep in mind. So you could have all these unencumbered views of the many ships that were passing along the Hudson River. Unencumbered views of, right, Jersey, of the river, and also of that Railroad. (laughs) Oh, right. You had to be creative, Tom, because there, of course, would be black smoke coming from the railroad. So Olmsted's Park starts here at 72nd Street, Mm -hmm. and it stretches how far north? Well, it originally ran to 125th Street, but starting at 120th and up to 125th, he created a little loop so people could turn their carriages around. 
essentially. It was a carriage loop. A carriage loop. And that went around this home or this inn um, called the Claremont. Yes. The, so that the Claremont was actually the next door neighbor to the Monte Alta house, which oh. has been demolished by this time. But the Claremont remained throughout the 19th century and well into the 20th. It was once a lavish home and was even owned at one point by the brother of Napoleon Bonaparte. The house that was acquired by the city, along with the parkland, and then became the Claremont Inn, which was a restaurant, hangout, rest stop for weary carriage riders. Who wouldn't want to stop at the, at <laughs> yeah. the Claremont after an exhausting <laughs> stroll, you know, in your carriage? Now, some new attention, though, was brought to this area of the world with a, a nice fancy neighbor for Claremont Inn. That would be the final resting place for the great general and controversially lackluster president, Ulysses S. Grant, who died in 1885. His tomb, where both he and his wife Julia would be interred, was built nearby Claremont Inn up here in 1897. The the tomb was actually built inside that carriage loop? Seems like a strange decision. I don't think Olmsted would have been a particular fan of this, but, you know... He was long gone by this point. Yes, but in the 1890s, we're now in this period of great, rich, austere architecture, the city beautiful movement. And so the park now had many different kinds of monuments and statues, which we'll talk about later, but this was kind of like the crown on top of the park. But you said earlier that the park continues north of here. It would eventually. Just a few years later, the Manhattan Valley Viaduct, which is this beautiful vehicular bridge with beautiful metal arches. This would expand Riverside Avenue up to 158th Street. Uh, That was in the year 1908. And by that time, we were no longer calling it Riverside Avenue. We were calling it Riverside Drive. Right. So I want to take us then back down to the other end of Riverside Drive, yeah. uh, to, to let's say down to the 72nd Street spot, and actually let's walk down into the park itself a little bit, mm-hmm. um, just up against the railroad tracks, <laughs> and turn around and look up at what is up there, and, and maybe walk north a few blocks, you know, so you can get a little distance, and, and look up um, at Riverside Drive. And notice the topography, because there are places along Riverside Drive where there are outcroppings and rocks that sort of jut out over the park. But it's just interesting to stand here and observe uh, those changes in elevation and how they form these dramatic peaks and drops. And that drive up there, which, let's say in 1900, was still called Riverside Avenue, was intended to attract the city's wealthy class to build their mansions. At the, at the beginning, the thought was that mansions would mm-hmm. be built here. And, you know, that was kind of slow to materialize up here, again, because it seemed so far out of the way. Although some, some luxurious mansions and estates were erected here. Um, a couple include the the Isaac Rice home, uh, which opened in nineteen, which was constructed in nineteen o three, at eighty ninth in Riverside. That building is still there today. It's the Yeshiva Katana. It's an Orthodox Jewish uh, school. It was named Villa Julia after Rice's wife Julia. 
um, who, among other things, found herself very annoyed by all of the noise uh, that was coming up, not just from the train. She was particularly <laughs> annoyed by the tugboats who were sounding oh, sure, and yeah. blasting you know, their, their horns. There was a lot more traffic on the Hudson back then than there is now. Lots of toots and whistles. <laughs> And and they were. It seems that the captains were actually tooting to each other, sending little messages back and forth. You know, kind of like texting each other mm-hmm. all through the <laughs> night, like hundreds of times a night, and it was preventing her from sleeping in her mansion. It's echoing up the hill here, right into her window, right into the Isaac Rice <laughs> mansion um, windows. It was so annoying to her that she founded the Society for the Suppression of Unnecessary Noises. <laughs> So that that was what was happening at 89th Street. Uh, but meanwhile, down at 74th Street, Charles Schwab, mm-hmm. um, financier and zillionaire, uh, built his French chateau-style mansion in 1906. The Schwab house is just like so over the top. I mean, it's such, it looks like you're looking at something in the French countryside um, or in the Loire Valley or something, right? It was unbelievably still standing there until 1948 when it was demolished to make way for what was really happening along Riverside Drive, which was the, the construction of apartment buildings. So by the 1920s, there was a boom in apartment building construction all along Riverside Drive. Um, and of course, many you know notable artists, luminaries, even sports figures would move to Riverside Drive in the 1920s and 30s, and you know throughout the 20th, and even today, still live there. Uh, notably, I just wanted to point out at 33 Riverside, a couple interesting people lived there. Their first had been the the townhouse of Sergei Rachmaninoff, the, the famed composer. Mm-hmm. That would be demolished to make way for an apartment building. An apartment building that would be home to both George and Ira Gershwin. Ooh, they cool. would have adjacent penthouses. George is <laughs> looking out over the river, uh, looking west, and Ira's looking east toward Times Square and Broadway. Well, and just generally speaking, I think in comparison to another district like Fifth Avenue, a lot of artists, musicians who are wealthy would choose Riverside Drive as their home. Yeah, it was, for some, also convenient to get to work, you Mm -hmm. know, if they were working in the West Side or in the theater district or something like that. But just a reality check here, throughout the 20s um, and even into the 30s, these people, luminaries, Greg, are looking out over the Hudson, looking down into this new Riverside Park and at trains going by belching black smoke. A smoky ditch, essentially. Yeah. And that became annoying to people. In the 1840s and 50s, it hadn't seemed so annoying because the railroad signified something. It signified progress. People were proud of this railroad. Mm -hmm. But by the 1920s and 30s, it was just loud and it was annoying. The novelty was long gone. And it didn't help that the railroad was actually getting a little bit cocky. Because (laughs) back in the 1890s, there's a little point here, a little drama that you didn't address. Oh, yeah. The city had actually purchased land between the tracks and the water. The city was already kind of annoyed by the railroad and wanted to sort of step in and prevent too much sprawl and growth of those tracks. However, a couple years later, in a remarkable 
series of events, the railroad just decided to enlarge on its own. They just sort of, <laughs> add, they went from two tracks to six tracks. They just added them. And they also just started storing stuff on that land that was, you know, between them and the water, on the city's land. And so people looked down from their apartments and from, you know, Mrs. Rice looked down. They were outraged. So in 1880, a group of neighborhood residents formed a group called the West End Association. They would take the railroad to court. They would fight this enlargement of their tracks. And they would wind up years later arguing before the New York State Legislature in 1913. And they won. They, they won their case and forced the railroad literally to cover its tracks. That sounds straightforward. But how exactly are they going to cover their tracks here next to the park? Right. There were there were obviously some questions to answer, like, you know, aside from just logistical questions, what were they going to cover it with and what would that space become? Mm -hmm. Well, many people were pushing for it to become an extension of what was actually very much in vogue at that point, a newfangled motorized highway. And there were highways being built elsewhere around here. So it seemed like an obvious choice. Um, but what wasn't so obvious was the exact placement of that highway. Should it be literally over the train tracks, way up high, or should it be down by the water? And that was a debate that raged amongst the residents of the West Side and among city leaders uh, for many, many years on through the 1920s. So imagine that as George Gershwin and Ira are composing the music and lyrics of Girl Crazy, their mm -hmm. hit in the 1920s, <laughs> They're hearing the sounds down below of the trains, <laughs> which, by the way, I don't think it's coincidence that that was the show that included I Got Rhythm. <laughs> I think he was hearing the trains. And the tugboats. Yes. The city had in 1930 actually hired McKim Meaton White mm. to take on this issue. Um, and they came up with this idea uh, that, that included a, a, a motorized highway to be placed on top of the train tracks, but in a kind of uh, Roman aqueduct structure mm -hmm. uh, that would let air in on the tracks. And some of this structure was actually built, and you can see it, between 72nd and 79th Street. Uh, it was constructed in 1931. But then Robert Moses, the parks commissioner, comes in in 1934. Yes, with visions of his own that didn't quite match those of McKim, Mead, and White. <laughs> <laughs> so he launched a massive project called the West Side Improvement Project. And he amazingly, here in the middle of the Depression, pushes it through between 1934, when he became Parks Commissioner, and finished it in 1937. He looked at those tracks of the New York Central Railroad, and he said, OK, let's cover them in a giant tunnel and cover most of it with parkland um, and with this tree-lined promenade. The promenade has it, several different sections. Um, many of them have community gardens, their dog runs, lots of park benches, and wonderful views out onto the Hudson. His Henry Hudson Parkway uh, was built all the way down, for the most part, over on the river's edge. And most of that was built on top of landfill, because he brought in 132 acres of landfill to expand the park west into uh, the Hudson River and west of those tracks. So the parkway 
snakes around. It kind of wobbles through the park. It's not a sort of a straight through parkway. That's right. When you're walking through the park, you seem to forever be going up and under mm-hmm. the parkway. Mm-hmm. But most of it actually does go pretty much straight along alongside the river's edge, still leaving what's called the esplanade over against uh, the water for pedestrians. Mm-hmm. But the train tracks to this day are still there. So then what's between the West Side Highway and the tracks? Right. That is the land that used to be kind of dumping ground for the railways. Um, That was leveled out with landfill by Moses. And because it was flat, that became an ideal place to put baseball fields, tennis courts, basketball courts, etc., so that's where most of those big, flat recreational facilities were, were built, and again, mostly on, on landfill, mm-hmm. on space that was totally unused before. Moses hired Gilmore Clark, the landscape architect, and Clinton Lloyd, the architect, to design playgrounds for children. So they added many, many different children's playgrounds that hadn't been there before because Olmsted wasn't a huge fan of playgrounds. He thought that they sort of interfered with the sort of visual of the, you know, the scenic design. Parks weren't for kids. <laughs> In some spots, if you go to 101st Street for about 10 blocks and you stand at the water and you look up, you can really see six distinct different levels to the mm-hmm. park. You're standing next to the Rob- to the water's edge along the Esplanade, um, which is Robert Moses. Then there's that parkway next to you with the flat playing fields on the other side of that, again, Robert Moses. Then there's the promenade, which is built on top of the train tracks, Robert Moses. Then there's the hillside with children's playgrounds and lovely walks, Mm -hmm. Olmstead. Then Riverside Drive, Olmstead, Mm -hmm. above that. And then actually above that is Upper Riverside Drive because... There are these parts of Riverside Drive where it actually sort of splits off and one becomes kind of local access to the apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. And it goes even higher. And that, again, is taking you up to the the original elevation of the land. And there's little green areas there as well. Exactly. We're going to skip through the 1970s and 80s where the area saw where New York was struggling with crime in all parts of the city, including here in Riverside. Um, but that did lead to big cleanup efforts, including, in 1987, the founding of the Riverside Park Fund, which would later become the Riverside Park Conservancy. Thousands of volunteers over the years have pitched in to help contribute money and their time, their planting efforts, their green thumbs, to turning uh, the park into what it is today, which is really beautiful. Today, the Conservancy has more than 4,000 members. Now, before we move on literally to Riverside Park, I think it would behoove us to talk about Riverside Park South, which is not really a part, but it is a continuation of the green space. So going back to 1985, Donald Trump bought up the the old Penn Central rail yards. Remember that the, the freight trains had stopped running through here in 1980. So Trump buys up the train yards between 59th and 72nd Street, and he plans to build what he was billing as the city's tallest, most amazing, absolutely incredible skyscraper and a shopping mall Mm -hmm. over here on this spot. Obviously, given the fact that, you know, residents are organized into the West End Association and other people are very committed group. Yes. Right. Protests followed. Negotiations took years, 
until an agreement was reached in 1991 to develop, instead of that ginormous skyscraper, several smaller apartment buildings and a park instead. But those smaller apartment buildings... Right, they would become Trump Place... And the park you mentioned would become Riverside South, okay. which now includes basketball courts, a soccer field, a pier, and many other things. And meanwhile, uptown in 2010, Riverwalk opened, which was a, a narrow stretch along the Hudson uh, between 83rd and 91st Street. That's important because when it opened, it actually opened the entire Riverside Esplanade to pedestrians. So for cool. the first time mm-hmm. in 2010, all of that was open and you could really go from the tip of Manhattan to the top. So that's sort of an overview of Riverside Park. But one or several details that we didn't quite get to were all these peculiar little monuments and special little features that are within the park itself. Because you mentioned with the City Beautiful movement, Riverside Park became an area where people placed their monuments to civic leaders and artists and those who inspired. Yes. So the best way to tell those stories is to go visit the park itself. And we'll go to Riverside Park after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, The Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. Plus. 
We have arrived here at the entrance to Riverside Park, um, specifically at 72nd Street and Riverside Drive. That's right. So today we're going to be walking inside the old or the original section of Riverside Park. Yeah, yeah. so let me be clear here that uh, we can't walk the whole distance. Uh, we're going to walk the oldest section from 72nd Street up to 125th Street, the Grant's Tomb area. And who do we have here to greet us at the entrance to Riverside Park? Who is to give us some energy to, to embark on this walk uh, is Eleanor Roosevelt, a statue of the First Lady as she leans against a rock, contemplating the city around her. The sculpture was made by Penelope Jenks, and it was unveiled in a ceremony in 1996 that had the current First Lady in attendance, which was, of course, Hillary Rodham Clinton. And this was part of a larger project that actually transformed an old entrance ramp to the Henry Hudson Parkway into this area that we're standing in right now. So, so before the 1990s, where we're standing was a ramp to the highway. Yes. It's much more pleasant today. Now, to give you an idea of what we're planning on doing during this trip is to stop at various points of historical interest. Um, but while we're doing it, we want you to really listen to the audio here very carefully because even though it's an incredibly peaceful place, a heaven on the Hudson, if you will, we are actually almost always surrounded by vehicles. And so there'll be that slight rumbling in the background. It'll fade and get louder depend on where, depending on where we're standing. So now we're walking into the parkway and we see before us actually the Henry Hudson Parkway overhead. So we'll be walking underneath that parkway to get over by the water. And you'll remember from the show that actually that section of the parkway is built atop the railroad tracks. So we're in that initial phase of development of McKinney and White's clan that actually was constructed. Um, let's go ahead and walk along the water and towards a section that many New Yorkers know quite well, the boat basin. So we're walking by a dog park uh, before we go underneath the parkway. Just next to that dog park is, uh, is quite a great view down to the train yards. The old train yards. The old train yards. <laughs> Bye, pups. We're going to go look at the train yards. We're walking through the tunnel, so we're walking underneath the Henry Hudson Parkway. I think, this is some, I think there's a few dogs that want to come with us. Once we get through the tunnel, we can turn around and look down onto the train yards beneath us. And there are stairs down to the waterway. So we've made it down to the Esplanade. Uh, down towards the water, we're actually looking across the Hudson to New Jersey and the beautiful Palisades. And it's an absolutely breathtaking view and one that is here thanks to landfill. Yes, so this is part of the West Side Improvement Project. Uh, and Greg, this esplanade will continue straight all the way up past the George Washington Bridge. So let's continue walking up the esplanade here to the boat basin, which you can see from, from the esplanade here because it's where all of those, sh that's, it's where the marina is. You can see where all those small ships, the small sea craft are being docked. So we made it to the 79th Street Boat Basin. Right now we're sitting at the Boat Basin, which is a very lovely place to go on a Saturday afternoon with your friends and have a couple drinks and a nice meal here at the cafe 
at the Boat Basin. But this is actually, this whole structure was built during the Robert Moses redevelopment in 1937. Yes, Moses built all of these playgrounds and sports fields and facilities for younger New Yorkers, but the Boat Basin was something that was built specifically for adults in mind, so that they could look out, maybe yeah. watch a yacht race on the Hudson. <laughs> you might even, you know, live on your houseboat here, perhaps. But what I find extraordinary just about the, the, the Boat Basin itself, this, this fine stone structure here, is that above it, it's where the, you know, there's, there's traffic and you can really, you can't really hear it um, or, or really experience it. But if we were to emerge and look down upon it, it, it you know, it would certainly not be as pleasant as, as it is right here. Would you like to go to a place that's far more peaceful? It's just a few steps north from here on Riverside Drive. Well, let's go. Okay, so Greg and I are walking along Riverside Drive at 83rd, and you're now cutting back into the park. Cut down into the park. Now, over to the left is a fun little playground. Mm -hmm. A children's playground, so another Robert Moses, Moses created playground. Right, so from the 1930s, but we're going to go... Oh, where are you going? Oh, we're going to go rather up this rocky path. It's going to take us to a place that is far, far older. Than the playground. Shall we walk up? Let's go. So, are you sure we're allowed to walk in here? <laughs> it, it seems precarious, but we are. I'm going to take you in our in our minds back to the time when there was no railroad to this in this area in the early 1840s, and over to the east. You know, there were only farmhouses and mansions, but very, very sparse. And around this area, about the area of today's two blocks, I'd say, there was a farmhouse owned by the Brennan family. Now, is this ringing any bells? I think that we talked about this in our recent show on <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe in New York. So Edgar Allan Poe spent a couple summers at the house, at the Brennan's house. With his ailing wife. With his wife, Virginia. And it was from there that he wrote one of his greatest works, The Raven. Now, we've just climbed up this rocky path to a large rocky outcropping that is elevated high over Riverside Drive. Yeah, so why have I taken us here? Well, let's go to the very top. So why did you bring me here? Well, on a nice day... Edgar Allan Poe would walk from the farmhouse, would come to this very rock outcropping, sit and stare out towards the Hudson, contemplate. He would spend hours here. Sometimes he would have picnics with Virginia here. He would often bring the Brennan's children with him. In fact, he so beloved this place, Dom, that he named it after the Brennan's son. Do you know who his name was? His son, Tom. Yes, this is Mount Tom. No wonder I feel so at home up here, Greg. <laughs> I'm on Mount Tom with a Tom. So, but as you can see, it's a quite different view than what Edgar Allan Poe would have seen. We're looking down to what is called the Serpentine Promenade uh, before us, which really starts here at about 83rd Street. Beyond that, we can see the Henry Hudson Parkway, uh, a level beneath that, which has now deviated from the train tracks by this point. The promenade before us, Greg, 
uh, that starts here and it goes and goes and goes many, many blocks north of here is built atop what is called the Freedom Tunnel today. That's the tunnel that holds the train tracks. Named after the graffiti artist Freedom, who did many fine works uh, inside along the walls, colorful works that we can actually peek into oh, cool. and, and see a little bit farther uptown. Now in the 1980s and 1990s, people lived in those tunnels. That's right. It was a place of refuge for homeless New Yorkers. But first, at the base of this serpentine promenade, you'll see that there's a circular area with something gated off in the middle Ooh. of it. That's a memorial that we should check out first. Getting down is a little bit more difficult than, <laughs> than walking step. up. <laughs> After a rainy day, ah! Edgar Allan Poe could have written a short story about climbing down this mountain. Okay, so we are approaching the memorial. It's a circular gate. Inside of it is a, is, a, is a marble monument with some words carved upon it. The stone reads, this is the site for the American memorial to the heroes of the Warsaw Ghetto battle, April, May, 1943, and to the six million Jews of Europe martyred in the cause of human liberty. This was dedicated in 1947, mm -hmm. making it one of the first um, Holocaust memorials anywhere. But I wanted to ask you about that wording. It seems, it seems interesting to me. This is the site for the American memorial. What, right. What's happening here? <laughs> Believe it or not, this was not meant to be the memorial. The, uh, the original plans were to actually build some kind of a monument, a statue of some kind. They had actually submitted plans from, from various artists, and then they never really got the funding. So as a result, this marker is essentially the memorial now. This, uh, this and of course, the whole, the whole plaza here, which is called Warsaw Ghetto Plaza. But as we turn and face north, you'll see that there is an entire promenade extending in front of us, actually curving a bit out toward the river. And this extends all the way up to 91st Street. This was part of the original construction in 1937 and is built directly atop the tunnel holding the train tracks. And you'll see as we sort of stroll this promenade that there are walks on the east side and the west side. There are mm -hmm. park benches lining the whole way. There are beautiful trees hanging over this promenade. And in the middle are lawns and further and farther up, you'll find beautiful community gardens. In the middle of these gardens and lawns are ventilation yeah. breaks. <laughs> yes. I mean, the other odd thing is to the right of us is Mount Tom. Up uh -huh. there on the hill are all of these gorgeous apartment buildings. To our left is the Hudson, and of course, as you can hear... The Henry the Hudson <laughs> Parkway. But here it is level. It's strangely peaceful. You have families, you have people who are exercising, people walking their dogs. Like, it is like a park that is functions in very many distinct ways. So tell them, let's walk along here, enjoy the views and the... Serpentine the, Promenade. The, the Serpentine Promenade up until 89th Street, because I have... Because there is something major that I think is often forgotten that people don't often know about. There is a huge piece of architecture up at Riverside Drive and 89th Street. Let's go there now. Okay, we're climbing yet another staircase. There are balustrades around this giant white marble rotunda with columns. Greg, this is a memorial to those who served in the Civil War. And, and why did they place it here? 
Well, starting in the 1880s and 1890s, you're talking, you know, the generations following those who fought in the Civil War. There was a movement in vogue in all the major cities to build gigantic monuments to the, to the local residents, to those who had died and participated in the war. They, these were built all over the country. So this, of course, came to New York, and right at the time during the City Beautiful movement, why did this monument land here at 89th Street? Well, a lot of these community organizations actually actually lobbied for it. The Upper West Side won out. They actually wanted to build this over by Mount Tom, which would have, of course, eliminated Mount Tom. Oh, wow. That would have taken it out. That didn't work, so they moved it to, to this particular area where it speaks very nicely to some of the architecture that sits around here. But yes, just consider that in 1902 <laughs> when this opened, the, you know, the train would be rumbling by just down this hill for another 35 years. Yeah, it wouldn't have made for like peaceful contemplation to those who served their country. Speaking of those who served their country, there is a fabulous memorial to a female hero just four blocks north of us right now, still on Riverside Drive. Let's head up there. Yes. Okay, well, we've arrived here at 93rd Street and Riverside Drive, an interesting spot because Riverside Drive has split into two, and it's here in one of those parks at 93rd Street that we're looking up at a statue of Joan of Arc. Equestrian statue of Joan. She's holding her sword aloft atop a pedestal that looks very much like a cathedral. Written on the stone are the words, burned at the stake at Rouen, France, May 30th, 1431. And indeed, there are stones from her prison embedded into this monument. So some of Joan of Arc's actual history placed within the pedestal <laughs> yes. of her statue. Uh, the, the statue is sculpted by sculptor Anna von Hyatt Huntington uh, for a group that had formed in New York City with the express purpose of creating a statue in 1915 to commemorate Joan of Arc. And the statue was unveiled on December 6, 1915. While we're up here, Tom, up here on the Riverside Drive, there's another very curious memorial at 100th Street. So let's head north. Okay. That gentle tinkle of water you hear is that of a fountain. We're sitting in front of the Fireman's Monument. And this was dedicated on September 5th, 1913. The inspiration for this particular monument, I mean, New York has had a troublesome relationship with fire for its entire existence. In 1908, a deputy fire chief named Charles Kruger died in a fire on Canal Street. And this incident inspired the monument. People realized that New York didn't really have a monument to celebrate the lives of those who have fought fires in its history. So that's, uh, that is essentially the purpose of this really grand memorial. And this cause was taken up and championed by Bishop Potter of St. John the Divine fame, who we talked about in our recent show on St. John the Divine. Uh, what's interesting about that is here we are at 100th and Riverside Drive. St. John the Divine uh, was under construction just 10 blocks up and a few avenues over. So Potter was now doing things to beautify as well this new neighborhood, his Acropolis on the Hill. There's a ceremony held here every year uh, to honor the firemen who have died in the previous year fighting fires in New York. 
But Tom, there's something I want to show you in front of the fountain, something that's, that's embedded into the ground. There's a, there's a very unique plaque that was placed here in 1927. For it wasn't just those firemen who battled those blazes, but it was also fire horses. Mm. So the ASPCA uh, placed this plaque here in 1927, and it says, This tablet is dedicated to the horses that shared in valor and devotion, and with mighty speed bore on the rescue. So we're going to descend back into Riverside Park, because we're way up on Riverside Drive. We'll be descending down into the park and then strolling, Greg, all the way up until about 125th Street. Prepare for more stairs, Tom. Whew. Well, Tom, that was quite a walk. That was uh, <laughs> 20 blocks, in fact, during which we passed all kinds of other monuments that we wish that we could have talked about and, yeah. and looked down on wonderful vistas over the Hudson. Uh, and then we also looked east and saw recent podcast subject, Cathedral of St. John the Divine. We saw Columbia University and we saw Barnard. And we saw many Columbia journalism students making their own podcasts. <laughs> I think that we, we passed four or five of them. People either had microphones in their hands or they were walking dogs. That is true. <laughs> Listener, that is true. So we're walking up a, a tree-lined esplanade here in the middle of the plaza to the front steps of Grant's tomb. And on our right, just, west, just east of us, is Riverside Church, and across from that, Sakura Park. But Greg, I have a question for you, uh, since you recorded an entire podcast on this subject. Yes, many, many years ago. Why is New York City the final resting place of Ulysses S. Grant? It's true that Ulysses S. Grant wasn't, wasn't associated with New York City. Grant wasn't born here. He didn't really come here that often during his presidency, but he lived here at the end of his life with his wife, Julia. Interestingly, by his own wishes, he wanted to be buried in New York because that's where his wife lived, which is an extraordinary request if you think of him as one of the leading American military figures of the 19th century. You would think that perhaps he would be buried in Arlington Cemetery or in D.C. where he was, in fact, president. Cemeteries, he could not have had his wife buried next to him. And he wanted to be with Julia for all eternity. Here is, in fact, where he is with Julia, interred in Grant's tomb, not buried... Right, just to clarify, he's not buried in the ground, Yes, but he is inside. And it's interesting to note that this became one of the top tourist attractions in New York City during the Gilded Age. Yeah. But Tom, I want to take us way off the beaten path here. So we have Grant's Tomb, we have Riverside Church. We have a lot of traffic. A lot of traffic here. I want to take you down this down this small path that's actually in Riverside Park, oh, okay. if you'd like to go there right now. So we'll just cross the street back down into Riverside Park. It's interesting to think about what this area might have looked like before the park, before the railroad that this was a very high bluff. In a way, it must have reflected a little bit what the, what the Palisades are um, across the water. This is a very high elevation here in Manhattan. It only gets higher, of course, as you go up Manhattan. In a way, it feels like we're, we're heading back into nature, into the, the beginning of the story. We're yeah, 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 it does. We're leaving behind so much of that Riverside Park 
and Riverside Drive development that we've been talking about. And this, wait, wait a second. What is this at the end of the path here? We're, we're heading toward a little monument, a little, it's a little marble urn. We started our story in the 18th century with a, a very tragic story of a five-year-old boy named St. Clair Pollock uh, who died when he fell off of a cliff around this area. This is where he was interred, and, and because of his father's request, this land was to be preserved by whoever owned the land. And so the city then took it over, and this remained. The, the stone itself has been replaced, I believe, a couple times. Uh, but what's incredible about the origin of this, here, let's, let's turn around. So this is the grave. Let's, here, let's look around it, Tom. I want to read you the engraving on the front of it. Erected to the memory of an amiable child, St. Clair Pollock died July 15, 1797, in the fifth year of his age. Now, when Claremont Inn opened up on the hill here, it drew hundreds of sightseers to this area. It drew many artists and writers who discovered this spot and took great inspiration. Uh, most people didn't have any context for what this unusual grave was. It then reached a kind of another level of significance when Grant's tomb opened in 1897. So now here you had a hill that had essentially two memorials one of them to an American general, a great American military officer, and another to a five-year-old boy. Memorials that were placed exactly 100 years apart from each other. Oh, yeah, exactly. Almost exactly 100 years. And, and why would these artists find this particular spot so inspirational? Well, especially if you're a poet, there's something very romantic, capital R, romantic, to the yearning of the past for simpler times, to what this area was long before it was overly developed. As a result, you will find poems dedicated to St. Clair throughout newspapers in the late 19th century, early 20th century. If you'll observe here, someone has left flowers, there's rocks on him. Like, people come here to this day as a source of inspiration, as a source of contemplation. I want to read you one of the most famous poems that was written about this very stone, written in the 1920s by a poet named Anna Markham. At Riverside, on the slow hill slant, two memoried graves are seen. A granite dome is over Grant, and over a child, the green. The whole world knows the hero's name, and his blue battalions filed. One tender line is the other's fame, an amiable child. Strange chance for one who led no cause, who only loved and died, to lie here in oblivion's pause by the great captain's side. And thus ends our tour of Riverside Park. Uh, we want to remind you that this is our abbreviated tour of Riverside Park and that it actually extends north up to 158th Street and extends down south to 59th Street. And in both of those areas, there's other historical spots to visit. So, if you pl so plan your trip to Riverside Park and just do the whole thing. For many photos on the history of Riverside Park and Riverside Drive, check out our website. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. And while there, also join us on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram, 
and on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, where you can show your support to the Bowery Boys with a small monthly contribution. It is because of those contributions that we're able to produce a new show every two weeks. And patrons, check your emails because we have some very special things planned for September and October. So check those out. And th- and as the and the and the bell tolls for us, Tom. <laughs> Riverside is telling us this show is over. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening to this tale of Riverside Park. Thank you for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Mm-hmm.